Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, we're ready. No, no, no. Right here. The wind, you guys? Is necessary? No change. Oh. Awful. No, that is not cute. Yeah, 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 go on. Yeah, I need someone to make me laugh. Where's Kim? Kim is always late. Get out of her way. Stop. Jealous. Enough. Stop. That's it. We're done. Money. Chloe, come in here. You have to see this. What is it, Kim? It's like, I don't know, it's like some kind of a movie about dad and this black guy. I think it's a documentary. A documentary? Is that like a a movie, but it's longer? Courtney, what's a documentary? I think a documentary is like a movie about, about ducks, but it's like a true story. Maybe we should watch this with Rob. Ugh, I am boycotting Rob. He's such a loser. Hey guys, it says this documentary is eight hours long. How long is that? Like, how long you were married to Chris Humphreys plus two hours. Chloe, that is so mean. Guys, I don't think our attention spans can go eight hours. What if we each take turns watching it for 15 minutes? First you, then me, then Chloe, then Kylie and Kendall. Then will it be over? I'm not sure. Which is longer? Hours or minutes? I totally did something for 30 minutes once. Oh, no, I know. Hours have to be smaller because, like, the word is smaller. I think eight hours is, like, if we had jobs, like, nine to five. Guys, 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 I just had a really scary thought. What if there was something on TV for, like, eight hours and we weren't in it? That's so not possible. (laughs) (laughs) We have to find out. Everybody find a spot. Marsha and Chris, you sit over by Chloe. Mr. Bailey, you go sit with Cato and Courtney. Judge Ito, is it, like, totally racist if I ask you to order sushi for all of us? And now the editor of the Johnny Cochran Poetry Anthology, Colin McEnroe? (laughs) All right. I actually had to, well, never mind. To to write that intro, I had to learn more about the Kardashians than I previously knew, and I don't feel like I'm a better man for it. And that actually sort of brings up the question of whether any of us on the show today are better people for having watched uh, the almost eight-hour documentary O.J. Made in America. I think we all are, actually, but it was, there were probably moments. Yeah, I know, actually, one of the panelists is, uh, is... is doing the international symbol for maybe. Um, so let me tell you who's with us today. We're gonna, we, re, we are devoting this entire show to OJ Made in America. Uh, we're doing some unusual things, cutting our nose panel down from three to two and adding Will Leach, uh, contributing editor at New York Magazine, senior writer at Sports on Earth, uh, founder of Deadspin, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, he's uh, joining us from the studios of WUGA in Athens, Georgia. Uh, and then in studio here, Irene Papoulos, a lecturer at the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and rhetoric at Trinity College. Kate Russian is a poet, writer, and educator. Uh, you'll also be hearing uh, here and there from Caroline Waterlow. She is an Emmy award-winning documentarian and one of the producers of O.J. Made in America. So um, th- this is, so we all watch this thing, and it is very long. Uh, and I'm the only person who watched it in little bites. Uh, everybody else 
just kind of marathoned it. Uh, and I don't know what that did to you guys. Um, but I, I think maybe the, the place I'd like to begin is just to ask all three of you, um, uh, because I, as I was watching it, various emotions and memories got stirred up in me uh, in this kind of little storm going on inside me. And I'm just wondering uh, what predominantly your, your set of emotional reactions were. Irene, I'll, I'll start with you, and then Kate, and then we'll talk to Will. Okay. I, um, yeah, I did watch it pretty closely back um, during the trial, and I realized, you know, I thought I knew a lot about race in the country. Um, I had been a grad student in the 80s and all that, and um, I, but I really identified with Marsha Clark, who was, you know, I could relate to her. I mean, this this time you did? This, no, last, Last back then. Oh, you did, okay. I identified with her, I could relate to her 80s hair, even though it was the 90s, Um, and I felt like she was really trying to, she was, I thought at the time that she was doing a pretty good job because she was going for the truth, you know, she wasn't really, yeah, Mark Furman was a distraction, but to me that didn't seem, I didn't realize until I saw it now how... Um, naive, how completely naive she was, and I was also watching it, and how Mark Furman's role in it was was everything in a way, it seemed. So that's where I would start. Like, wow, she was so naive, and I was too, as Kate, a white woman watching it. Kate, how about you? What's your prevailing reaction? Well, like, like Irene, I thought I knew the case until I saw the documentary, and I did not realize what a Hollywood story it was, and I didn't understand how much uh, the racial situation outside of the courtroom influenced what was going on inside the courtroom. Mm. And Will, how about you? Yeah, you know, I think it's partly that, but, you know, there are so many when you name a movie O.J. Made in America, that's, I mean, that's a big statement. Yeah. <laughs> like you're saying, okay, this is an American story. And to me, that is one of the major takeaways is, you know, there was this notion in the 90s when we were watching this that why are we watching this? We, we are terrible people. This is a murder case that we're turning into a gossip thing or so on. And I think the movie does a pretty, among many other things, does a pretty terrific job of putting this in the context of American history where we were at that time and things that are still very relevant now. So for me, you know, the, the, to watch watch the film and realize that this case was not just some random celebrity trial that we just got went temporarily insane for a year and a half and got obsessed with. It actually really spoke to a lot of issues that have been going on, not just in Los Angeles, but really in the country at large. So well, one of the things this uh, film does at the beginning is, in fact, just look at sort of who O.J. was prior to the murder. And really, you're three or four hours into the movie before you really, uh, in, in, or the documentary, before you encounter the murder itself. So much of this is a scene setting not only about O.J., but as Will is saying, kind of an understanding of this particular moment uh, in American life. But, but I think the first thing it really does is acquaint us with O.J. Simpson uh, and his aspirations. Um, actually, Will, if we could play cut two here. He himself says in a lot of the archival material, you know, I want to be known. I want to be famous. I want to be a guy who's loved. And it wasn't even so much about money as it was about just fame and being an American hero, I think. As a kid growing up in the ghetto, one of the things I wanted most was not money. It was fame. I wanted to be known. I wanted people to say, hey, there goes O.J., and whatever ways media was presented to him to get out there to be that person. And he took, you know, in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, he was a huge, huge star. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that or people under a certain age just don't even know it at all. But he crossed a lot of lines. I mean, he 
was one of the first black spokespeople for big companies. I mean, he had a Chevrolet contract right out of college. They tell me that the Chevrolet selling team is the greatest in the country. So, and that was the beginning of, of athletes doing that kind of thing and sort of monetizing their fame that way. So I think he crossed a lot of media, you know, um, lines and, you know, in a time when media was more consolidated. So he had a huge presence and he, he obviously sought that out. So um, there's so many places that we could go. We could talk all day about what she just said. That's Caroline Waterloo, one of the producers uh, of this. Um, You know, it it does strike me that one of the things, my very last minute at Pursue walking into the studio was, um, and and actually, Irene, I will go to you on this one, was that, first of all, you know, she's saying all this stuff, Caroline's saying all this stuff about how famous he was. But one of the other things that's clear, actually, Will, I'll throw this at you first. One of the things that's clear to me in this documentary is that this guy who had all these remoras, you know, I mean, one of the things we see in this documentary is this whole bunch of ass-kissing hangers-on uh, and sycophants who are surrounding this guy, plus, you know, some some family members and, and, and in-laws who were also kind of uh, like pilot fish attached to this whale that's actually sinking in the ocean a little bit. I mean, one of the things that's clear is that that O.J. Simpson isn't even as marketable as he at the point of the murder as he has been for his entire career. I mean, the guy who does the naked gun movie says, well, yeah, we could get him kind of cheap. Yeah. You know, I also think it, frankly, also plays into the to the racial issue. That's obviously there's a major thesis and through line of the movie, because, you know, there's a very great scene early on, you know, uh, where Muhammad Ali, the late the late Muhammad Ali, got together with a bunch of very high profile black athletes, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown. And basically, you know, they went to OJ, who was in college at the time and was already this huge star at USC. You know, and they were saying, like, it's time for us as athletes to use our our influence and our power to make a difference. And OJ said, no, I want to be popular. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that whatsoever. And it's funny how that becomes a through line really for the rest of his life, not just when, not just during the top of his, when everything's going great for him, but even after the, uh, after the trial happens, he he goes back to his life. And he thinks, "Wow, I'm going to have all the hangers on that I used to have, and I'm going to, I'm going to, everyone's going to love me, and they're all going to say, Juice, Juice, I love you, Juice, you're awesome.' And none of those people are left anymore. But that's still something he really needs more than money, more than love. It's just this. He needs these people to adore him. So he finds this, frankly, very lower, uh, cla- uh, very lower uh, status of people that uh, that ended up ca- causing him trouble after the trial. So I think OJ, if there's a single through line for OJ's life. I think the movie makes a pretty strong argument. It is that desperate, almost pathological need to be adored more than anything else. Yeah, I think we all wind up thinking. Were you going to say something? Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was, uh, I'm going to say that the idea of being known is really interesting because he wanted, you know, you know, it's uh, I, it's true that he wanted to be known, but what exactly did he want to be known as? You know, it seems like he wanted to be known as only his good parts without his bad. It's not like he wanted his whole the the whole of what made up O.J. Simpson. But isn't, isn't his that everybody? Does anybody want? Does anybody want to be? I mean. I would like to be known for who I really am with all the all the <laughs> that's aspects. That's why you're not famous. You know? Yeah, well, that's probably true. You know, no, but I think a lot of people want, want don't you, well we want to be understood. Well, it's interesting. That that's a whole another uh, you know train of thinking is 
what do people want to be known for when they want to be known? Do they only want to be known for the cool things about them? You know, but it seems like his hang, you know, so I would want to say that. And, and in a way, the, the whole disassociation from his race, I, I want to be known just as me. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, being black, he felt, you know, that's that's a sort of emblematic of a lot of things that he wanted to sort of let go of. He, he didn't want to be known as he wanted to be known as some kind of pure embodiment of that guy. And I also have to say, you know, thinking back to his image that he was a great he was a wonderful, charming, you know, probably hanging out with him was a lot of fun being a hanger on, you know, so he had a lot of he had this whole charm and everything that seems to me was 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 a part of the complex you know package of who he was so that was a part of him that he you know but it was distilled out this mm -hmm. idea that you can distill someone out something out from yourself to be known that's that's a recipe for disaster the other part coming and you know messing it all up i want to come back to the, the race part of it obviously this is happening you know almost well, our conversation is happening right almost coterminously with the funeral of muhammad ali that's something we can't ignore before we get back to that though, okay okay so here's my aperture of the day that one of the things that I, I i think i got out of this movie kind of retroactively is the the incredible similarity between an athlete and a woman and a famous athlete and a famous woman in each case you're experiencing a, um, a depreciation you know in other words one of the things that oj simpson realizes that there comes a point where he can't run very fast anymore he's not worth anything on that level he's trying to figure out how he can monetize himself and how he can continue to be famous too and it's very similar to what happens to famous and attractive women right they're constantly in this state of at least potential depreciation the body and, of the body of the body yeah. and and if they're famous for their beauty and their uh, elegance and their charm they're worried about that all the time and you know there, we we learn so much about OJ Simpson's policing of Nicole Brown's uh, body even like when she was pregnant he complained that she was a fat pig i think he's actually worrying about himself you know she's an extension of him if she doesn't look as good if she's depreciating he's depreciating yes and his um of uh, fixation on Nicole uh started his fixation on a woman started with his girlfriend in high school and that's the thing that struck me most uh that he stole in high school he stole his best friend's girl mm -hmm. then he married her so when he has his one of his first interviews when he transfers from uh, san francisco community college to usc he is being interviewed with his first wife, Marguerite, standing by his side. And that image struck me like a bolt because I said he didn't even live for a year with buddies and learn how to make his own scrambled eggs and do his own laundry. <laughs> Marguerite was there when he was a, a college undergrad and a star being interviewed for TV. Uh, let's come back to this whole question of race. And, and Wolfie, now we will uh, listen to cut four here, a little montage featuring Caroline Waterlow and some clips from the movie. We do specifically reference Muhammad Ali in the film. It has been said that I have two alternatives, either go to jail or go to the army. There was this engagement of the athlete. Some major athletes stood up. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. Ezra Edelman, who's the director, who has a long you know, background in, in making great sports documentaries, although I would call this one maybe not necessarily just a sports documentary. Um, 
you know, he felt strongly about putting a lot of that context in and understanding that there was sort of a choice that was being made. And there were athletes who, you know, and we have a great sports journalist, Robert Lipsight, in the film who says, you know, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Ali for sure, were race men. They stood up for principle and damaged their commercial possibility. You know, and then O.J. obviously makes different decisions. When I asked him, I said we are trying to get black athletes to understand they have a role in the current civil rights movement. His response was, I'm not black, I'm O.J. O.J. was saying, I want to be judged not by the color of my skin. I want to be judged by the content of my character and most of all, the caliber of my competence. I think I'm the greatest football player that this country has ever seen. That's all I want to be judged by. Don't tell me I've got to do this because I'm black. So, Will Leach, um, this is a lot of what you said, too. Uh, and, and one of the things that jumps out in those first three, three hours or so is the number of franchises with which this man was entrusted with, the kinds of franchises that he so desperately coveted, whether it's the Hertz commercial, uh, and we can talk a little bit about the racial semiotics uh, of that as they are revealed to us, or, or, I mean, carrying the Olympic torch or being in the booth for Monday Night Football. These are all things that are just gigantic career moves and, and, and enshrined. Uh, of anybody. And, and he got a lot of them. And, and the, the film argues kind of at the expense of having any real racial credibility. Yeah, you know, he got those things because he he explicitly set out to be as appealing and unthreatening to white people as possible. And that was from the beginning. That was something that was very important to him and something that he wanted to do. His, and that, that went beyond just his his. Uh, public life, you know, I think in his, in his private life, he hung out with mostly white people. There's a there's a uh, um, many comments about how he lives in he lived in Brentwood, which was a he was basically the only African American th- that lived there, um, and he you know this was who he was, you know, th- and that was, you know, I think there's even a, a, a line in the movie where you know someone says that like OJ was everybody's black friend, <laughs> and I think I think there's an element of truth to that, and I think that was something that he I don't know if he saw it that way as much as he saw it as Listen, if I'm going to succeed, you know, we talked we talked earlier a little bit about how, you know, the athletes protecting their body and their worth while they can. You know, OJ got a ton of credit at the end of his career for being so proactive and being so smart about put, putting together what he was going to do afterward, about being a pitch man, about being an actor and staying in the public eye in a way that, his, you know, sure, by the time the Naked Gun came around, his star was a little, uh, wasn't so bright. But at the end of his playing career, for the first couple of years after that, he was a bigger star than he really even was while playing. He was, they talked about he was happy to be out of Buffalo and be able to really uh, have a national aspect. So that's, that was always the goal. I think that was always the goal for him. And, and, uh, and if it turned out that he was hanging out exclusively with white people and uh, subscribing, subscribing to those values, well, I, I think he saw that only in his own betterment. The uh, one of the things, Kate, that struck me was uh, early on. And I mean, I remember the Hertz commercial, but I think as a young person at the time, it didn't really dawn on me that I hadn't really seen, you know, athletes had done commercials before and even black athletes had done commercials before. But like for shaving cream. Right. You know, uh, and, and sort of guy stuff, Vitalis or something. Um, and, and here, you know, it's one thing to trust you to carry the ball. It's another thing to cr- trust you to carry the Olympic torch. But to carry 
a briefcase in a purely capitalist commercial that's aimed at a business clientele and a, a white tourist clientele, this is some of the most supreme validation a black athlete could have gotten at that moment. Although I, I'm sure you noticed the little tweaks and twists that they made to make sure that this was okay to do, that the Hertz had to do to, to send a signal to us, oh yeah, it's okay that this is a black guy running around with a briefcase trying to get to his car. Yeah, one of the things that the uh, documentary pointed out is that the producers of the Hertz film, the Hertz ads, were always careful to have white people, only white people, in the shot. White people who they, I guess they assumed the viewers could identify Girl with. Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts. Little old ladies. Grannies. Yeah. Girl Scouts the, where, the where's the beef granny yeah. urging him on go, and giving OJ, him go. the okay. Go, OJ, go. Yeah. Um, and and so that the result of that was that you know it wasn't like oh a black guy in the commercial for for it just seems like for most people it was like this was OJ. Well, the, yeah. and and will there's that. Inc- I mean, actually, there are a few moments in this documentary where you can't believe what somebody's saying and whether he can possibly understand how it comes. Com- co- it sounds coming out of his mouth. I think it's the guy Fred Levinson, the guy. I think it's the guy who directed this commercial. At one point, he says, "Well, you know, he didn't really have black features." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, but you know that uh, that the idea that that you know one of the things that people constantly talk about when they want to talk when they want to pretend that the O.J. Simpson case was not about race is they say you know they they say that oh no like it was all just it was it was he just he was just really successful and it turned out that he happened to be black and I think the movie shows just how much not only was it not an accident this was very calculated by people really on both sides right. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here, but this is flying by too fast. I, I could talk, talk for eight hours about this documentary, but you wouldn't want that. We'll be back after this. So sit back, be patient, and keep your mind open for a tale that's never been sung. The moments, the heartache, deceit, corruption, the story of O.J. Simpson. I think I just do have to mention this really quickly. So Will was talking about how O.J., it's mentioned that he was the, the first black man to move into Brentwood and towards the end of the movie when uh, the, the, the trial is over. And he's he's being shunned by people in Brentwood. And there is this sort of Citizen Kane moment where he stands there and goes, I was here before any of them were. They should move. And and you see his pain, you know, that, you know, he, he made the right moves. And now there are these Aravistes who feel like they can shun him. It really is kind of the, the ultimate insult to uh, a, a black man with upward aspirations if you take the murder out of the, uh, the equation, which, of course, you can never do. And I want to talk about that now. Okay, I asked you guys for your emotional reactions. I'll just tell you mine. Well, first of all, towards the end of the movie, I started to get really angry, uh, angry all over again about how this played out and, and about, you know, one of the things this movie does, I think, better than anything I've ever seen is really acquaint you with the savagery of this crime. I mean, the wounds that we see are, are graphically displayed to us. Uh, you know, the, the reenactments of the crime are, are very upsetting. And we get fairly well acquainted, too, with Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. So they're real people to us by the time uh, their lives are taken. You can't not become angry about that. But but then I saw the, these scenes, which I'd kind of repressed or forgotten about, these scenes right after the trial where, and I remember this so well in America, where there were black people with whom I would customarily make common cause about 90% of the issues in life who were cheering about this. I, you know, there were scenes of this everywhere, and I, I think I personally encountered scenes of it. And often they were side by side on a city street with white people who were crying, you know. And it was... Uh, 
in that sense, it really was a moment in which the the goggles that we wear were really laid bare in a way that you just don't typically see. You know that you know if I were living having a black lived reality in Los Angeles, I'm sure I would have been cheering. You know, I but since I wasn't, I was incapable of processing this with anything other than outrage and deep sorrow. And for me, Will, and I know you wrote about this as kind of a movie about something that was perceived as a civil rights victory. To me. Th- even now, this is a very difficult thing for me to reconcile. Oh yeah, I mean it is for me too. But I'm not talking about us. <laughs> it's probably the best, yeah, because I wrote my piece that uh, that uh, yeah, you know, I think the movie makes a very very strong case that for uh, black people who had lived with with Robert Gates and and the LAPD and just the culture in Los Angeles for so long, you know, the listen maybe. It was a civil rights victory, even if he was guilty. And that's not to and and the construction of that is, listen, may one one African American with all the legal re, uh, abilities at his recourse and at command, he beat the system in a way that because the system had always been so rigged. The, the, the there's a there's an, an idea basically. I think the movie makes a pretty strong case with the idea that okay, maybe one. Black guy who is innocent, who is guilty, getting off doesn't make up for the thousands and thousands of innocent black men who were found guilty of things. But you know what? It's a start. And I have to say the movie, the movie, it's the thing that's so great about it is that it's so fair to everyone. Because I hear that statement. I hear it like probably a lot of white people do. And we're like, yeah, but there are two people that die. And that's horrible. And the movie is very conscious of that. And I think as, as you've spoke, spoke of before, is very clear about the idea like this was a terrible thing. OJ did it. This is a horrible thing. But in a lot of ways, and that's a, the overarching themes of the movie, this is about more than OJ. And I think that – I think it also speaks to well at the end of the film when o, after OJ has been acquitted and he tries to like wear the mantle of civil rights icon and he wears it incredibly poorly and very briefly. And I think – you know. I I think that speaks to once again about how this was so much larger than OJ in a lot of ways, even really just larger than the case in general. Um, before I hear from uh, Kate and Irene, let's say uh, here two. There's two jurors who are featured in the film and they are both African-American women, but they are very different age groups. Uh, and they have, I think, you know, significantly different takes on all this. Let's hear that. Do you think that they're members of the jury that voted to acquit OJ because of Rodney King? Yes. You do? Yes. How many of you think felt that way? Oh, probably 90% of us. 90%? Did you feel that way? Yes. That was payback? Uh-huh. You think that's right? The majority of the world or the majority of Americans think that we're a group of idiots uh, who didn't get it right. I think that the jury was made to be the scapegoat for their faults. It was a mistake to present Furman the way they did. It was a mistake to let Darden get up there and be a part of that case. Had they come correct, had they had the right attorneys up there putting on the case that they need to put on, they would have won. It wasn't payback. They messed up. You know, um... I, I think one of the things – are we back on here? I don't hear, my, hear myself in my headphones. Oh, there we go. Um, I think one of the things that Will said, you know, that's really true is that the movie really tries to be very fair to, uh, to myriad points of view. Um, and, and, Kate, you know, 
in in those two jurors, juror number nine and juror number two, or Carrie Bess and Yolanda Crawford, if you want to use their real names, you actually hear two perspectives on this. One of them is that, you know, this this is just payback for Rodney King and for all the other things that Rodney King stands for. And then in Yolanda, Craw- Yolanda Crawford, you hear something that I remember thinking at the time, that maybe the state lacked the moral authority and the competence to convict somebody, even somebody as obviously guilty and vicious and horrible as O.J. Simpson, that somehow or other this jury said, you know what, you don't only really exactly have the goods in any way, you don't have the moral status uh, to make a claim like that one. Well, you know, I, I love the voices of uh, the jurors, uh, Carrie Betts and Yolanda Crawford. I thought they brought a refreshing tone to their section of the film. Um, I think that um, not only were they two different age groups, but they were perhaps two different economic, from two different economic groups, and maybe they had different um, uh, educational status as well. And um, you know, to use a, a Hollywood metaphor, I think that, you know, it's always disappointing when you give the Oscar uh, for the the lesser movie rather than for the best performance. Mm-hmm. And in some way, I, I saw a parallel here in this O.J. case. So it's not really satisfying to deal with the racism of the and, and the actions of the LAPD by letting O.J. go. Mm -hmm. But I also think when I saw the two teams, the Dream Team and the prosecutors, I also thought I was seeing some kind of um, uh, economic status battle being played out. And I felt that the prosecution team just couldn't match the Dream Team and that the Dream Team outmaneuvered them and out glam them and outshine them. But I think also they had this, uh, Irene, you talked at the beginning of the show, about uh, they had a sort of a cognitive deficit, too. They, they, Johnny Cochran understood something that they didn't understand. You said you identified with Marsha Clark, and ultimately you, you both seem naive to you now. Yeah. And, and naive, I assume, about the fact that, you know, uh, uh, Marsha Clark says in this documentary, I've basically never seen a more open and shut case. There was a blood trail from the crime scene back to the person's house. You just don't get that and, in prosecution very often. Yeah, like... And, for example, look at Eric Garner. It was clear it wasn't his fault that, you know, it, it's, he, it wasn't that he rolled around in the back of the um, car. You know, it was, it, you know, it was, a, it was an open and shut case. So I think about the idea. It makes me think about the idea of justice, you know, and, and people who are raised sort of in a, you know, like a lot of, you know, white society where justice is, you know, going to prevail no matter what, you know. And so I, I think that's... You know that that's that's the the devastating thing about this movie is it made made me think it makes the viewer think you know as Will said too you know like it's not you know the system is rigged you know and I think before I would have said you know yeah we know the system you know or a lot of white people would say yeah we know the system's rigged but pretty much you know there's justice somewhere there's justice in the idea of justice is you know what it's there you know justice does not always prevail and there's there's a lot of things that get in the way of it and. You can't you can't assume that, you know, if you have the right answer and you have the right people and you have the right argument, you're going to be able to get your way. It's just not the, tr- the case. Uh, and race plays a huge role. And it's and, you know, it, and so people who have a so to know that is to say, you know what? Yeah, he did it. But so what? 
you know, I mean, it, 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 I, n- I wouldn't have thought that I would get to a point where, say, this, ho- this horrific murder, I understand why people would not convict him, why a jury would not convict him, but I feel like I do, and I feel like I understand their logic in a way that I hadn't before. Go ahead, Kate. One of the things that uh, I was surprised about, I was shocked about, is I didn't realize the DA had made the decision to try the case in downtown L.A. Mm-hmm. rather than in the county where where the crime had occurred. And I think that the D.A. was trying to game the system in a way with his assumptions about race. Mm-hmm. I thought in a way, I hate the term, but I think he was pl- trying to play a race card and didn't play it very well. And I agree with uh, Yolanda Crawford when she said that she felt that the, the jury was being scapegoated uh, in terms of, of of the outcome of the case. Well, uh, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is the the role of the media in all this. And it isn't necessarily something that Ezra Edelman, we should parenthetically mention, he's Marion Wright Edelman's uh, son. Uh, therefore, I don't know, some of these, Muhammad Ali probably hung around in his living room someday. I mean, it's kind of like, was that kind of life. But, you know, one of the things you've written a lot about in your career is is sports coverage and the way sports gets covered. Um, and and I, I found one of the most surreal moments it came back to me as a memory, but I'd forgotten about it, was during the Bronco chase. Well, at a certain point, they kind of handed off coverage to Al Michaels, mainly because he lived in the Brentwood neighborhood. But it sort of started to sound like him. I mean, it just thought, what a conflation of roles. (laughs) Here's this sports figure being pursued by police because of a murder. And it's starting to turn into play-by-play there on the screen. Yeah, and I, if memory serves, he got a call from a uh, prank call from a Howard Stern listener. That's so right. like it just got even more surreal in this in this whole kind of crazy thing. And yeah, you know, I, I, according to, I was in college uh, dur- during this trial, and the thing that I think really sticks back to watch uh, a lot of the footage is just frankly how much footage there was. This was just this just took over the television, took over cable television for a year and a half to two years. It was imagine CNN looking for that plane for two years. Mm. That is what this trial was in a lot of ways. And, you know, one of the things that 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 comes comes across a lot in this and actually also in the the I enjoyed it at the time until now that I've seen this documentary and realized how silly it was, which was Ryan Murphy's O.J. Simpson uh, fictional series which I enjoyed as a fun thing, but I think this kind of shows just kind of facile that however that really was. It gets across the idea that, you know, putting together this case, they'd be putting together a case and then a witness would show up on Larry King. Right. <laughs> and it felt like in a lot of ways this was being legislated through the media in a way that it really feels... Uh, it feels both archaic in that like our media doesn't work that way right now, but also feels like everything is the court of public opinion anymore. In a lot of ways, it's sometimes even more important than the actual court. Right. Uh, I want to continue that part in, in our final segment uh, today. The show's flying by. But, you know, I do want to just quickly play this. You're going to hear um, uh, a little bit of the sports coverage. You're going to hear in particular a guy who was a lot more famous then, I think, than he is now, a guy named Roy Firestone, having a particularly tortured conversation uh, with O.J. Simpson. But here's a, a little clip that combines that and Carolyn Waterlow and some other stuff. You know, all of these, I mean, that footage is from, I guess, the early, like 1990, I think. What kind of public reaction did you get? And what kind of corporate reaction did you get? Surprisingly, so supportive, it was unbelievable. You know, so supportive, you know. uh, So I think all of these things, the journalists asking the questions or the the way the, you know, the way the footage comes across is very much of its time. So nobody dropped you from any contract. See, the one thing, another thing people don't realize about O.J. is he is extremely uh, well involved in the business community. He doesn't want to do this because it's embarrassing to him, but he's one of the owners of Honey Baked Hams. 
uh, Ramada Inns, a couple of Ramada Inns, three Ramada Inns, very involved, of course, with Hertz. And when something like this happens, it takes a toll. It takes a bite out of it, but... You know, it, that you bounce back from something like this. And so I think as we all get better about talking about these things and finding the right language to talk about them, maybe we're getting better at it, I hope. I think it's part of what, why this O.J. Simpson story is continuing to fascinate people is that I think they're looking for ways to talk about these things, whether it's domestic violence or the power of celebrity or the money <clears throat> that comes with it you know, or obviously police brutality, race relations. I mean, we're looking for ways. And so we can sort of latch onto this story and use this as the vehicle to talk about it. And I think looking at the footage through the years, you know, shows the way that we are getting better or worse or trying to handle these things. So I should say that when we're talking about, when he's talking about this, what he's talking about is the uh, domestic violence uh, charges against O.J. So uh, that's what this has to do with. The murder hasn't happened yet, but uh, O.J. Simpson's, as we now know, chronic behavior uh, of uh, violence and, and intimidation towards his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson at the time, has come to the fore. And and. You know, Will, having read you for years and, and knowing your opinion of sports media, I could just picture you writhing watching this Roy Firestone interview where he's sort of trying to ask a question about spousal abuse and, and answer it at the same time so that he doesn't really have to ask O.J. Simpson a question about that. Yeah, it's nice to know that everything could be framed in the purpose of one's brand in 1993 as the, the way that it is now. You know, I actually wrote a piece about this, uh, uh, a different interview that O.J. gave uh, back during the— uh, when I wrote about this during the Ray Rice trial about how you know O.J. was actually on David Letterman after the arrest uh, and after it had been publicized, but about a year and a half before the murders. And it never even – it had been maybe six months after it happened and the news had come out and people were all talking about it. And he gave a like 20-minute you know, happy, happy, uh, happy-go-lucky interview with David Letterman where it didn't even come up. And to me, that's not so much a blame of David Letterman uh, and, and even Roy Firestone in a lot of ways. That was just the culture at the time. Like to me, one of the things I try to write about in my New York Magazine piece about this movie is there's a lot of things where you watch in this movie and you're like, you know what? That would not go down like this now. And I know I know we, we sit around sometimes and we feel like, you know, you get on social media and you feel like the world's falling apart and everybody's yelling at each other. And you look at the that say the presidential race and you worry that everything's falling apart in a lot of ways. But if you look at the way that. Domestic violence, it's specific because I think, that, well, a part of the movie, there's a very strong documentary just about domestic violence folded in within this larger movie. And if you look at the way that was discussed in this, it just would not be discussed that way now. Like, do you really think? We, I mean, look at but you, know, you know how long it took the Ray Rice thing, you know, dragging around and Roger Goodell, you know, I mean, affecting, yes. affecting this veneer of deniability. I mean, how much improvement does that really suggest? It suggest, well, that, I mean, I think that's true. But even at that time, you know, when, when that happened, the public outrage, the, the anger with Goodell was because he had not suspended Rice enough. Mm-hmm. Like, remember, that's what like, maybe Roger Goodell hasn't changed as much, but our culture <laughs> has. OK, yeah, that, I, I'd buy that. There were we're ahead of Roger uh, Goodell on the road. Yeah, it's, of evolution. it's not that hard to, to win that race. No, absolutely not. All right. We got to take a quick break here. We'll come back. I want to talk a little bit more about this because obviously this is not occurring in a vacuum. Then you must quit. Then you must quit. If the glove don't fit. If the glove don't fit. Then you must quit. Stay with us. Only six more hours to go. Kidding. 
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the parts of the Kardashians in the intro were played by Lydia Brown and Leah Myers. The part of Bill Curry was played by Leslie Nielsen. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff charging money for autographs, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, the scramble is back with an election update. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, boy, this is the show is flying by here. But I just first of all, I want to say how great it is to have Will Leach on. Uh, usually when we have Will on, he's running for a plane like OJ almost uh, or his rental car and uh, talking into a cell phone. So to have you sitting in a studio in Athens, Georgia, giving long answers that we can hear very clearly is a real treat. Will Leach, uh, contributing editor to, for New York Magazine and senior writer about a million other places. And uh, Irene Papoula is here in studio with us, a lecturer at the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and Rhetoric at Trinity College. Kate Russian poet, uh, writer, and educator. Um, you know, uh, I want to sort of circle back to where we began, Irene, and and as I was thinking more about more and more about this, I was thinking about narcissism, that this is so much about narcissism and about that unique American brand of narcissism. It's a, it's a water fountain that will never quench your thirst. It, it will create more thirst without ever uh, uh, doing anything about it. I, I looked up this uh, reappraisal of Christopher Lash's famous 1979 book, The Culture of Narcissism. Uh, Lee Siegel, writing 30 years later, says, in Lash's de- definition, the narcissist, driven by repressed rage and self-hatred, escapes into a grandiose self-conception, using other people as instruments of gratification, even while craving their love and approval. Lash saw the echo of such qualities in the fascination with fame and celebrity, the fear of competition, the inability to suspend disbelief, the shallowness and transitory quality of personal relations, the horror of death. The happy hooker, Lash wrote, stands in place of Horatio Alger as the prototype of personal success. Um, I really felt like I was, I mean, just reading about O.J. Simpson. Yeah, and a lot of other people too. You know, I mean, it's it, it's a fascinating uh, phenomenon. You know, I think, and it, and it's it makes even in the movie it made me wonder how was he born that way, or was it the the circumstances of his life that turned him into this kind of a narcissist? Because the kind of, and also who else is a narcissist? You know. Who else is running for president that's a narcissist right now? You know, I mean, it's Gary Johnson. Yeah. I know it's Gary Johnson. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and Will, I mean, one of the things that I, I one of my few criticisms of Ezra Edelman, the director here, is that I don't think it's quite clear the degree to which there are 65 different people who, who I think appear in this documentary. And, and probably around 58 of them were trying to monetize their involvement in this or somehow squeeze something out of this lemon. The degree to which almost everybody who came into contact with this, including, you know, we're treated to this apparently conscience-stricken, atonement-seeking former agent uh, of OJ's, I think his name is Mike Gilbert, you know, who really sort of presents himself as a guy who enabled for a while and then kind of saw the light and realized that OJ was guilty and stuff. And then at the end, as OJ is descending through the final rings of hell, which turn out to be South Beach and then Vegas, um, you, you discover this guy, he was sort of part of this whole memorabilia rip-off cheesy thing. I mean, it just seems like one of the things this film does lay bare, although not all that self-consciously or directly is is that culture of narcissism and just the way everybody's participating in it somehow. See, I think it does do that, and I think it just does it in a it, – it mentions it, and then it moves on. And let's, uh, I, one of the things that – many things I love about this movie is it – trusts its audience in a way that frankly even most documentaries don't there is there is one of the things i love is you know you, you see all there's so many different people you talk about him there's so many other people in this movie ron ship being a great example of this who was oj's friend was a, was a cop and then later testified against him 
you see them change. Like they become characters in their own way. And some of them, some of them, sure, some of them benefit from the trial. Some of them uh, want nothing to do with this. Some of them haven't talked in years. I think Gil Garcetti hadn't given the interview in a really long time and he uh, agreed to do this. Like, I think that uh, it's also worth, worth remembering that on one hand, yes, you can blame the people who tried to profit on the trial. On the other hand, like three of those jurors' books were bestsellers. So obviously there was an, an – and, and the fact that we're, we've now had two O.J. Simpson mammoth miniseries uh, 22 years later speaks pretty well to the public's thirst for this type of thing. So on one hand, yes, there's all these people trying to to uh, to profit off of off of this terrible crime. On On the other hand, you know, this is – Frankly, its own sort of America. <laughs> I think that is representative of 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 our desire to want to know about this. So I don't think we get to keep our hands clean necessarily in in that particular situation. Although, Kate, it feels. I mean, it does feel as though everybody's a mini OJ in that sense. Anyway, um, you know, there's a, this judge at the end, uh, the one who finally throws the book at him. Her name is Jackie Clark, Jackie something or other. Uh, and you sort of look at her, and she's perky, and you and, and and engaged, and you think, finally, finally, somebody who's you know not part of this weird enabling app, uh, apparatus and who can get outside all the maneuverings and just nail this guy really good. And so I looked her up. She went from there into some kind of crappy reality TV show called Swift Justice with Jackie Clark, where she replaced, I think, Nancy Grace on True TV. I mean, everybody in this documentary is a little tiny OJ. Yes. And not only that, but she's married to a DA in Southern California as well, uh, Judge Jackie Clark. I was struck by that last scene that the um th- that trial for this bungled as as, as the uh as some, one of the pe- participants called dumb robbery uh, that it was t- it the that trial took place the sentencing took place near the anniversary one of the OJ anniversaries and the Goldmans were there Ron Goldman's family was also in the the courtroom when Judge Clark uh, made the sentencing. And then she just went on and on and on. And again, it felt like she, to everyone, that she was punishing O.J. not for this bungled, dumb robbery that was totally self-centered. He wanted to get his stuff back because he felt he was entitled. But that... That didn't make up for him getting off Mm. from the murder trial. So I think, you know, trying to profiting from the trial is not necessarily the same as being a mini OJ, though. I I think, you know, because I think the fascination that we have partly has to do with how amazing it is that somebody who seemed who was so successful, so beautiful, so wonderful, so charming could be so horrible, 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 you know. And I feel like that's that's part of the the thing that makes it insatiably fascinating. Like, wait, how did this happen? How did he do this? What happened? What was it? You know, and that's a little different from just wanting to profit from a, an opportunity to fame. Like, sure, you know, that people wanted to profit from it. But a lot of people in the story had some kind of 
I mean, Ron Ship was one of my favorite characters there. You know, just like a moral, they did have a moral center, you know, and so do a lot of people in the world, <laughs> it was, you know. It was punished in, in, and humiliated for having any kind of moral transformation. Yes. Hey, we're, we're almost out of time here. And, Will, I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I notice in this documentary is, there, I mean, first of all, we could never spoil it for anybody. You know, I mean, if we talked another three hours, we wouldn't spoil anything. There's just so much stuff. It is drinking from a fire hose. There's just so much stuff coming at you. And, and you may have your own favorite little thing. I mean, I started jotting down little things like golf cheating or Cole House Walker. It turns out that O.J. Simpson really wanted to play Cole House Walker. I mean, there's sort of volumes of weird symbolic reality in there. Uh, his father was gay. I just, if that detail was well known, I, I, I certainly uh, never knew it. Um, I don't know. Did you have a particular thing? I was going to ask you specifically about the golf cheating, which is, is sort of brought up as proof of his completely rancid moral character, which <laughs> it isn't really the place I would need to go to find that mm-hmm. out. But, but I'll just riff on whatever uh, was your favorite weird little detail. Well, I'm certainly uh, still adjusting to the dance video between him and B. Arthur. Uh, that was definitely came out of nowhere a little bit. And that sounds like something I'm making up, like Mad Lib style. But no, that's something that's actually uh, in the film. And I think, you know, there is... There's a ubiquitous to him in the 70s and in early 80s that, you know, I was born in 1975. So, you know, to me, I just always knew O.J. as a former star. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I never saw just how massive of a star he was. You know, these great interviews with Peter Hyams, who was the director of Capricorn One and later became like longtime friends with O.J. And it is fascinating to see how casting directors saw him. The thing like I forgot that he was in Roots. Right. Crying out loud. Like there is the number of things that OJ, the parts of American life that OJ uh, touched uh, before these murders, it's kind of staggering to go back and see all the footage of. And it just, we're, we're technically out of time here, uh, Kate, but I can see that you have something to say. Well, just go ahead and say. Yeah, just one thing the movie showed me, the documentary, documentary showed me, was that going back to high school, OJ used his charm and good looks to get in good, not just with white people, but with powerful white men who were part of the football machine, who used him as well to to increase their own power and their own fluent influence and and the influence and and money making capacity of their institutions. Um, this film does have incredible found footage. Will is talking about the dancing with B. Arthur. The, that's connected to this. Uh, I would brought this up with Caroline Waterlow. This completely weird sequence in which O.J. is seen in tails um, dancing side by side with a girl who I think is supposed to approximate Shirley Temple. And this really is the famous Bill Robinson parentheses, Mr. Bojangle, Shirley Temple sequence. And OJ's even dancing up and down stairs. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> this this is another moment of surrealism, that, that notion even that he would play into that particular trap and do it gratefully and, and, and happily to uh, beef up his celebrity even more. Anyway, thanks so much to Will Leach. So great to get you uh, live at his studio. Uh, and, of course, it's always great to have Kate Russian and Irene Papoulis. Jonathan McPants really worked hard on this, but so did everybody who watched an eight-hour documentary. So thanks to all of you. Breaking news, Donald Trump announces that the O.J. Simpson gloves would definitely be too small for him. 